Everyone, welcome to another edition of the Life of Brian. Dot 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 Manix, that is podcast. With thanks, of course, to our good friends at uh, Mercots. That's mercots.edu.au. Got some good news about them shortly. But let's welcome the star of this uh, podcast, the, uh, the man who who brings the the word Brian. Otherwise, it would be called Life of Someone Else, but it isn't. It's Life of Brian. Dot dot yeah. dot. Hello, Brian. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm well. Now, I want to start this edition of the podcast off a little differently. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, because, well, it's called The Life of Brian, so what I want to know is, and this is a mm-hmm. question without notice that I haven't told you about, I right. want to know what is new in The Life of Brian since the last time we spoke? What is new in well, The Life of Brian? new and exciting and what's getting you out of bed? Well, you know, I think we've had Apart less from incontinence. Mis- well, incontinence gets me out of bed quite a bit, <laughs> but, um, well, you know, we've got less lockdown now, I suppose. That's happened and um, the weather's better. And no, it's just been more of the same, I think, Kev. But you're Not rehearsing with... and you're getting ready to do, you're actually preparing yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yes, I am. I've been rehearsing um, with Tim Henwood because we're doing a couple of shows together um, because we can't really do bands yet because um, they're not letting enough people in a pub, but we're yep. doing a couple of acoustic shows, which we'll... Well, it's embarrassing when the band outnumbers the crowd. Well, that can happen, can't it, you know. Um, I hope the duo doesn't, um, you know, isn't more than the crowd. That would be very embarrassing. But, yes. um, yeah, we're playing at uh, the Melbourne Public Bar, I think it's called, a um, couple of weeks, and we're playing yep. at Geelong. And we were supposed to be playing in Adelaide, but uh, that's been locked out because they've got another cluster. So when you do rehearsals for this, do you and Tim just sit in a corner with a couple of beers and a guitar and uh, and sort of muck around? Are you playing guitar in this yeah. duo? Okay, yeah. good. Not in every song, but in quite a few of them I am, and I might even play a bit of bass um, just to give it, you know, some sort of different sort of sound. Um, but no, no, essentially, Tim's a, Tim's a diabetic, so he doesn't drink, but I probably drink enough for both of us, so he sits <laughs> right. in the corner and I'm sitting there with a beer and, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's just pretty casual, you know, especially if, it's not as casual, that casual for a band, but with the duo, it's just two of you sitting there playing a guitar and having a beer. So when you put the set together of what you're going to do, uh, do mm. you sit down and, and go, okay, so we've got to do this one and this one, yes. and could, obviously you did the album with the Androids and there'll be some of the stuff off that, I'd imagine you'd do. Yeah, yeah there will be. There'll be, um, actually, good thing about Tim is, I just, you sort of said, oh, I'm going to play Gravity and I'm going to play this and like that. And and I sort of just looked at the titles of the songs and then when I went and listened to them, I thought, oh, geez, all of these are hits. He's, yeah. had, hits, he's had a hit with about four different bands. Like <laughs> he's had a hit with the Rogue Traders, he's had a hit with the Androids, he's had That's a right. hit with uh, the other one, the Prince, uh, yeah, that one, and another one. So anyway, good for him. Yeah, and he's, a very, he's a very multi-talented man and uh, he's not someone who's sort of locked himself into one genre of music either, has he? No, no, he goes, you know, plays all sorts of stuff. And uh, so, you know, I'm, anyway, I'm looking forward to doing some work with him and, um, you know, next year's starting to, the calendar's starting to fill in a little bit. So we'll just Good. keep our fingers crossed and um, hopefully get back to work soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we don't like to lock ourselves into one genre of guest on uh, this podcast either. We have all sorts of uh, guests who've, uh, who've uh, been on this program, uh, from Dawn Fraser, Dick Smith, Steve Waugh, uh, Wilbur Wilde. Yes, Maxi War. <laughs> I need to talk to you about that one. Um, <laughs> there's some people from the Censorship Bureau want to come and speak to us. Oh. Yeah, we've, we've got a new rating now. Um, oh, okay. But, you know, we've had also Alice Cooper's been on the program. You know, Alice. we've had some, some really different people on this uh, on this podcast. And we great. had two really different people on this podcast today, though they're kind of alike in some ways. Well, they both sort of... Uh in television, they're both sort of commentators of a certain field. Yeah, via different ways to get to it. You know, one through a pop band sort of uh, initial yeah. sort of a thing and the other one through a radio and through yeah. being a disc jockey. So, yeah, yeah interesting way they've, they've come to it, but they're, they're both on the program. We'll uh, give you details in a tick. But remind about Murcotts, uh, They Murcotts have uh, the special uh, uh, offer going now for Christmas. So jump on their website. That's uh, murcotts.edu.au. Uh, Christmas gift vouchers from now through until December 23, which means you can get them right up until uh, almost on Christmas. Um, 
you can save 60 bucks on a voucher. So make sure you uh, take advantage of that terrific offer. Uh, $239 at the moment from now through until December 25, it is. Uh, the Christmas gift vouchers available for our good friends, mercots.edu.au. If you need to check anything out, give them a call on 1300 576. Dennis Cometti is a guest today, Brian. Dennis Cometti is going to be centimetre perfect. Now, if you're going to do impersonations of him, he might not turn up. He'd come in optimistically (laughs) and come out misty optically. Uh, Geez, he's done some beauties over the years, some of those He has done some beauties. We'll talk about uh, all that, even even sprinkling in uh, song lyrics into, uh, into his commentary. That's coming up a little later on. Because, Brian, Yes. December the 5th, Saturday, December the 5th, mate. National Patio Day. And Dennis right. is the ambassador. That's right. And they're going to raise money for cancer and uh, cancer awareness. And um, I think it's a great, a really good cause and what yeah. a great way to um, so sign up. You get become a host and... Uh, you raise some money for cancer and get pissed in your backyard. So good one. <laughs> it's the normal day for you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You know, should be, what patio day should be just you know pissed in your backyard for cancer. Day. Exactly anyway. right. Exactly yeah. right. Our first guest though is a man who uh, literally doesn't need any introduction. But I mentioned uh, that uh, you know they both came through different avenues to get to where they are today. This bloke started as a pop star in New Zealand. That's of all right. Places. He did. Um, Yes, and uh, he's sort of come to us uh, via uh, radio and uh, all sorts of uh, vehicles of television. We're going to talk to him about all those things. Uh, and, of course, his name is, well, his name is Richard Wilde, but we all know well, him. Well, it's Richard Wilkins. And he's a, he's a great guy and he's a very, very interesting man. Now, have you run into Brian over the years, I must ask, firstly? I have, not intentionally. <laughs> um, <laughs> there were a couple of close shows. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we sort of go way back. When I when I think of Brian, I mean, I do go back to um, to Countdown back in the uh, in the 80s when, when he was on every week and I think I was on them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think I think of Brian as, you know, with, with the X-Men were synonymous with that show. And for me, it was about going from Sydney to Melbourne and, and I've always seen Brian as, you know, not not that he hasn't kicked on, but I mean, as, you know, part of that era in my life and very much a sort of a Melbourne dude, whereas I've always been a, a bit of a Sydney guy, you know. Mm. Now, Richard, if I was to ask you about Piaget's curriculum development theories, you'd probably be able to answer me, wouldn't you? Because you're actually a teacher. Well, sadly, that wasn't my specialty field. But um, <laughs> no, I, I was I was a teacher. Well, I, I wasn't. Well, let's see, it's a bit of a moot point because... Uh, History will recall that I was actually a teacher, but I I went to teachers' college. Well, I actually went to university, and um, and then at the tender age of eighteen, I discovered I was about to become a father. So I dropped out of university because I had to get a proper job to pay some bills. Um, so I, I worked in an abattoir for a few years, or a few months rather. Went to teachers' college because you actually got paid for that. So I became a teacher um, and did some of the stuff at uni, but I never actually went teaching. I did it pretty much to keep my parents happy, but as soon as I got my qualification, I, I, I ran away with the circus and uh-huh. formed a rock and roll band and started playing songs and stuff. The band must have been fairly good, Richard, because you got signed a worldwide deal to the Polygram. Well, you know, it's funny you should say, Brian, but, and, I, and I'm not... Not, you know, when people say, what's your greatest regret, which um, they don't ask me that every day, but sometimes when I think about it, I wish I'd kept writing songs because some of them weren't half bad, you know. Um, but other things came along when I came to Australia and I got involved in telly and radio and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I, when you read that Paul Simon got knocked back by 37 publishing companies and <laughs> this and that and, you know, people that I've interviewed and, and rubbed shoulders with over the years... Had so many disappointments in the early days, but they persisted. I'm sort of half angry with myself for uh, for not um, continuing songwriting. The follow up is, you know, well, it's never too late to start again. You know, we had a few hits in, in New Zealand, and then I came over here to try and make it. You know, I came over here after Split Ends and My Sex and Dragon, and they all made it look pretty easy. It was only when I got here that I realised that they had much better songs, much more talent, much better management than I did. So. Uh-huh. It all went to hell on a handcart, really. You play the violin as well. Well, I only after too much to drink on a Friday night these days. But uh, <laughs> yeah, when I was seven, you know, I sang in church choirs and things um, from the early days. Um, my mum was a, was a Sunday school teacher, so I went to church. So I, I won an award for being the most consistent church guy there when I was a kid. <laughs> one of the few awards I've won over the years. 
Uh, yeah, and, you know, music was very much a part of my life. You know, everyone in our family played an instrument, and um, so I was thrust, a, a three-quarter-sized violin was thrust into my hands, and when I went through boarding school and whatnot, I was the, you know, the first violinist in the orchestra and, and was okay at it in those early days. Since then, of course, my fingers have grown like Shrek's, so... Um, <laughs> It's not quite so easy to dance around those four strings. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, it, playing music at an early age gave me a, a great sensibility. And I grew up, you know, knowing what music was and reading music and singing in choirs and things. So when the Beatles came along in 1964, it wasn't just the haircuts and the screaming girls. I actually understood that there was something pretty special happening there. And, uh, and, and that, that's what changed the direction of my life, I think. Hey Richard, tell us yeah, about the yeah. early gigs. The early gigs when you came over from New Zealand as Richard Wilde uh, with the band. Were they? Were, were you doing the Bondi Lifesaver? Were you doing Bombay Rock? What were you doing? Yeah, I think we played Bondi, Bombay Rock. I remember seeing ACDC at um, at the at the Bondi uh, at the Lifesavers. I think that was the only time I went there. But yeah, we were. You know, it was a it was a really exciting time. One of the first gigs that we did, we had Fireboys um, opening up for us. They were called Girls School or something in those days. Run to Paradise and all that. They were the first on the bill. Oh, then right. we came on, Wild and Records, and we did, we did okay. And then this little band uh, who just released their first single called Simple Simon came on. It's called Numbers were the, the numbers were the top of the bill. Uh, and this band called In Excess came on. And I remember, you know, we'd just been lugging our stuff off the stage and these guys came in and they had, they had crew and they had their management. Chris Murphy was wearing a tie and, and they went on stage and they just were smashed it. And I thought, Oh my God, now we're in real trouble. You know? <laughs> it's one of those moments you, you think, Oh my God, why do we bother? Um, yeah, but they, they were they were exciting times, and we we gave it a red hot go. So, how did it get into the television from the band, Richard? It all sort of went belly up there for a while, um, and I, you know, I had a, a new little daughter to look after, and I remember my mum coming over here, and I I couldn't afford a table to for, to have breakfast on, and I uh, was doing it a bit rough. We'd been traveling around, you know, you know what it's like, Brian, yeah, you, yeah. you drive all day and all night to get to a gig and you make enough money to pay for the PA and the crew and the lights and, <laughs> and you know, suddenly it got time to grow up and we, we my publicist that we had sadly passed away and the band sort of fell to bits and mum picked up the paper one day and said, darling, there's an ad in the paper for a hotshot promotions manager for this new FM station in Sydney called Today FM. Uh-huh. I said, I don't know. I don't know much about. She said, "Oh, she said you've been doing all this stuff. You've been organising all your sponsorship on your tours and organising all your shows and doing this and managing this and that. You you know this stuff inside out." And I went, "Oh, okay." So I went along and took a meeting, and um, she said, "Always take the meeting," which is great advice from my late mum. Always take the meeting, and I did, and talked myself into a job and um, worked in radio for a a couple of years. I was still sort of singing on the Mike Walsh show and all that, but then. um, then there was a, an opportunity to work at a place that was called Club Superstation, which was the forerunner of what's now Sky News, I guess, but it was broadcasting to a, a couple of RSLs and whatnot in New South Wales. And I, for six nights a week, three hours a night, I was uh, throwing to music clips between the, the, the dog races and stuff. You know, <laughs> well, that's all we have from Gapto right now. Let's go to Richard Wilkins. I think I was still Richard Wilde, but let's go to Richard Wilde, who's... Uh, Thanks very much, uh, Graham McNeese. Um, well, you know, in excess, have got a new video. It's called Need You Tonight, and here it is, sort of thing. <laughs> and when I read on the Sunday paper that MTV was coming to Australia, this must have been in 86, because we started on the 16th of April, 1987. When I, um, when I read that in the paper, there was a, there was a photo of all the, uh, all the heavy hitters from Viacom with uh, David Leckie and all the heads from Channel 9 out on a boat on Sydney Harbour announcing that MTV was coming to Australia. Mr. Packer had done the deal, assuming that we could just sort of flick the switch at night and beam it in, because, of course, television used to finish at 11 or 12 at night in those yeah, days, yeah, remember? Yeah. And, uh, but then it became apparent to them that they needed to produce a local version. And I remember saying to my acting agent, um, uh, I'd, like, I'd like to you know, audition for that. Sounds pretty good. She said, oh, well, Russell's going. Russell Crowe and I shared an agent, Shirley Pierce, and she said, well, you know, you and Russell should go together and go and audition. And um, Russell still plays me out sometimes when uh, he hasn't done this for a while, in fairness, but he 
he's often sort of, uh, yeah, Dickie and I, we both auditioned for that MTV job and, you know, uh, Dickie got the MTV gig in Australia and I became an international, you know, <laughs> Oscar movies. <laughs> 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 so, uh, but that's how I got into television, um, you know, through the back door. So, what's your version <laughs> of that? You went to the MTV audition and you beat Richard Wilk, uh, Richard uh, Russell Crowe for the role. I must say that every, I think every every DJ and every actor and every model and half the musicians in Australia sensed that that was a pretty good gig to land and. Um, when I went and, and met uh, Saul Stein, um, who was the EP, and the others there, I knew, it was one of those moments of absolute clarity where I knew instinctively. I was a little bit—I was thirty-two or something, so I, I suspected I was potentially a little bit old, but I knew that it was the perfect gig for me. I, and I dare, dare I say I was a good choice for that. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I, I said, you know, it was a marriage made in stereo, but, uh, you know, because I'd been writing, I could always write, and we had to write our own scripts, and, you know, everything in those days was on a five-second roll, which meant that the director needed to know what you were going to say, so he could, you know, start rolling the tape, and we wanted to keep it tight and punchy and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, but it, it just felt like the right gig for me, and I recognized it was a great opportunity, and I gave it everything I had. And I, and I landed the job, and thank God for that. And we did it for six years to the day, two, three-year contracts before, uh, before pay TV came along. And they obviously decided uh, directly. You know, we were, the, we were before MTV Europe. We were before any other affiliate around the world. So we were sort of a bastard child, the, the Oaks from the Boondocks, and they uh. didn't really know what to do with it. And we were off air for a couple of weeks every year when Wimbledon came along and all that. But... Um, yeah, you know, I never missed a show, and we sort of made it up as we went. But I'm enormously proud of, of you know most of the stuff we did. I remember when we wanted to start having bands in the studio, but we couldn't really afford it. And I said, let's just do them acoustically in the prop style, so call it live from the prop bay. And we didn't do that, but we did have, have them acoustic. But every band you can think of, um, I think Daryl Braithwaite was the first. You know, his uh, he just released his, his album The Edge, and it, you know it was going okay, but not great. And we put him on acoustically on um, a Saturday night and Dennis Hanlon rang me on the Monday morning and said, Daryl's album's gone to number one and oh. it's sold out everywhere around the country. I've still got, I've still got the, um, the plaque that they gave us in my, uh, in my bar, in my house. But, um, the Americans liked what we did and they called it unplugged. So, <laughs> no, seriously. So that's where that started from. And, you know, so we had some pretty good ideas and, uh, you know, it led the way in, in a few departments, dare I say. You didn't miss the dogs in between the songs? <laughs> no, I didn't miss the dogs. <laughs> no, okay. I think there's a line there, Brian, but I'll let it go. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you've lasted so long in television, Richard, because you don't use do those lines. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've, I've put my foot into touch a couple of times over the years. It's hard not to when you do What's, you know, what, live television. Is, is the Goldblum thing still the one that haunts you? At the time, it was kind of embarrassing, although it's sort of, dare I say, grown a little bit over the years. Um, yeah, it was a busy morning. You know, Sarah Fawcett had passed away. I got a call, Diggy, you better come in here. Sarah Fawcett's passed away. We need to do a couple of things. Okay. And then, lo and behold, you know, Michael Jackson was being rushed to hospital and, and was, it was breaking news. And it was Carl and Lisa and Georgie Gardner and I were live on air for, you know, I don't know, four or five, six hours with no commercial breaks and getting fed a whole lot of stuff in our ears and stuff getting thrown in front of us. And I was recalling all these things. And I did get handed a note that um, Mr. Goldblum had uh, fallen off a cliff in New Zealand and we looked at each other and went, nah. And then a second one saying, you know, I was actually passed a piece of paper saying, you know, New Zealand police have confirmed it. So fortunately, I prefaced the comment by saying, we're getting reports that, um, you know, which I did, that, that Jeff Goldwyn, um, and of course, about half an hour later, uh, <laughs> it was strongly denied by Mr. Goldwyn himself. But <laughs> yes. it was a bit embarrassing, but the events of the day did sort of take over. I, um, and, uh, you know, as soon as we came off air, um, Carl and I were, were putting together a, a, a Michael Jackson special for, for that night, uh, which we did. And the following morning, he and I were on a flight to LA because at that time it looked like there'd be a procession up to Neverland or whatever the hell. So, you know, it was kind of busy. But um, the nice thing is that I've got a new friend, friend out of it all. And Jeff and I are in um, 
I guess what fortnightly, monthly contact with each other. I guess. Oh, cool. He's he's become he's become a really good mate. When we first caught up after that, I my my first one. <laughs> Mate, sorry about that. And they <laughs> said, oh, no problem. Easy mistake to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he went on with it. He even read his eulogy on uh, the Stephen Colbert show in the States. Uh, um, so, yeah, I got, I got a bit of shit. But um, what, what are you going to do? Uh, Rich, when you go to do, say, like the Academy Awards and the red carpet and all of that stuff, is that a fun job or is it really pressures on because you're trying to get Tom Hanks to say hello and, and you, 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 you know, is it fun or is it pressure? Well, it's yeah, it's more pressure than fun. It's fun when it's over, um, and it's exciting with the anticipation. I remember watching um, the coverage of the Oscars red carpet for a couple of years, and um, from my office at Channel Nine, and Carrie Ann did it for a couple of years, and I didn't look like fun at all. You know, her standing there going, Nicole, Nicole, Australia, Australia, you know, over here, over here. It's like, oh. It's all- and I love Kerry, but it was sort of embarrassing, you know. And I thought, oh, my God, I'd never do that. And then, of course, this one day they asked me, would you like to go and do the red cup? And I said, damn right I would. Um, <laughs> I did it for, for 20, exactly 20 years. You know, Channel 7 took the Oscars this year, which I, I was a bit sad about. But um, um, So for 20 years, I had the pleasure of um, going over there. And it was it's one of those things, you know, when I was... Brian, you know, when you look forward to a big gig and you're planning it for weeks and months and the, the longer you plan it, the, the bigger it seems. And yeah. then you get over there and then, you know, a, a split second later, it's all over. You know, um, it's funny how that happens. But halfway through it, you think, God, who's the, what movie's this? And, but fortunately, I've always been accompanied by a really good producer who's uh, been sitting there with me. You've, You've got a tiny little space to get in, you know, and our cameramen do a, a terrific job of making it look good. But um, it's like, a, I always call it, like, it's like a tsunami of celebrities, you know, they yeah. just gradually roll roll down there and, and the bigger ones come at the end, of course. So that early on, you've got the publicist come by, you know, I, I have Roland Drinkwater here who, who wrote the... Um, Wrote the music for the best foreign language film, uh, <laughs> and right now it's okay. Um, and then, of course, at the end of the, at the end, you know, Brad Pitt arrives and with a minute towards showtime. Oh, I'm so sorry, I don't have time, and he just goes, you know, gone. Um, but look, we've had we've had fantastic fun um, over the years doing it, and it's um, it's a joyous occasion. But once they're gone, they're gone. They're, they're, Jason Momoa, the Aquaman's one of the sweet guys who he looked at me and he said, I gotta do this live shot for CNN and he said, I'll be back and I went and producers and cameramen said rude words to each other like he's not gonna come back and <laughs> blow me down and sort of he went he swam against the tide as as I think Aquaman could do. Yeah. And yeah. uh and came back. But you know, it's you yeah, you earn your keep that day. I um I always described it as my sort of calling card because I I worked um very hard at it and you know, fortunately I've got some Good mates, people like, you know, Nicole and Keith and all that. So I'd sort of text them and tell them where we were. And sure as eggs, they would always uh, make a beeline over, which um, which was not always the case with everybody else. So, um, and it also it also helps to be big and sort of, you know, easy to spot, dare I say. Yeah. What about Russell? Did he come over or was he still dirty on you for getting the MTV job instead of him? <laughs> no, Russell Russell has been very, very, very kind to me over the years. <laughs> He's a he's a lovely guy. He gets he gets a bit of stick from time to time, but he's an extremely generous person, and um, you know he's a lovely fellow. And he's we've had well, it's not a lot of hate, but we've we've had a couple of little issues over the years. Um, nothing worth talking about. He's always backed me in. You know, if he's doing an interview for something, he'll always put a tick beside my name and give me the exclusive on this and that. And um, you know, I've always been we're both. Kiwis who've um, you know yeah. found ourselves over here, and I've I've, I've got nothing bad to say about Russell Crowe. Yeah. He's, a he's a fantastic actor, yeah, and and he's a he's a lovely fellow. I did a theatre show with him in 1989 before he sort of made it. And the blood, blood, what was it called? No, it wasn't Blood Brothers. I was in Bad Boy Johnny and the Prophets of Doom, yeah. which he played Johnny. Yeah, yeah that's and, what um, my job was to uh, kick him in the balls every night. So, <laughs> and he'd just say, "No, kick it harder," and he's just full on. But anyway, yeah. who's some of the best people you've had to interview, Richard? Well, you know, Rusty's pretty good. I like people. I I find generally, however, that um, and Russell's 
one of the one of the one of the exceptions. But I find that um, you know music people by and large are kind of sort of more interesting for me for me just me um, yeah. than actors. You know, actors are weird people who spend their entire lives reading someone else's words. Well, not their entire life, their entire professional life, reading other people's words by and large. And yeah. pretending to be other people, you know. So um, yeah. normally, when you interview an actor, it's like, you know, please, you know, publicist, you know, keep, keep it on the topic. We just want to talk about the film here. <laughs> so they're very controlled when you're talking to actors and things. I interviewed Glenn Close and Amy Adams uh, for the Today Show, and they're lovely. They're great, beautiful. You know, hugely talented people. But I love getting in the head of a great musician or a songwriter. Someone. You know, someone like a Bruce Springsteen or Neil Finn or Paul McCartney, yeah. people who, you know, had huge influences on me because I always still think of it as a, a bit of magic when a song is created. You know, there's, there's one minute, there's nothing there, and then three and a half minutes later, it is magic, and music is such a wonderful thing, and we sort of take it for granted. But the people who actually make it, I, I just think, are enormously talented. And I just love—I'm just walking down my bar now and looking at the poster of Neil Young and people, you know, just people who've written yeah. these songs that have had the whole world singing along. I love getting in their heads. What were you thinking when you wrote "Helpless"? You know, I've never yeah. asked them that question, but I'd love to. Mm. You know, or you know, and I find that musicians. Um, kind of more interesting, by and large, than than actors for me. But um, okay. you know, but I love I love talking to talented people and hearing of people's stories and you know what inspires them and what what fears they have, what dreams they have, what hopes they have, I, and talking about their craft. I don't really care what political party they vote for, but I I do love hearing about what inspires them to write such beautiful stuff. What about when you're on the other side of it, Richard? When the magazines and the and the thing are sort of at you, how do you handle that? Oh, I take it all with a grain of salt, really. Um, yeah. Slightly, slightly annoying when when the stupid magazine puts a composite photo of me and Terry Irwin on the cover and the misleading headline that we're somehow an item, you know, which is just stupid and ridiculous and it's sort of embarrassing. I'd, I'd give her a call and say. See how she felt about it, except I don't have a number. But you know, it's, I mean, it's just—it's just ridiculous. No, no one I know really cares about it. I mean, my kids don't even mention it. They've uh, long uh, got used to the fact that every time there's something written, there are so many inaccuracies, and they always get, "Dad, why do they always spell my name wrong? And how come they never know?" Proud of I would say, you know that concert, those concerts that we get to go to and we always seem to get a nice seat? Well, this is the other side of that coin, so yeah. just don't worry about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Who's one of the most difficult people you've had to um, interview that just it gave you nothing? Oh, they don't come along too often. I mean, most people who have any level of success are, are there not just because they're talented, but, um, but because they're, you know, decent. But, well, Prince. There you go, Prince. Um, okay. I was scrolling back through my foggy memory there. But, um, Prince doesn't do, well, he doesn't do any these days, but he, he didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Dainty called me once and he said, look, I'm about to announce a Prince tour. It's happening like like now, you know, like in a three or four weeks. Um, and Prince did that stuff. You know, he just decided he wanted to do a, a tour and probably do a few warm-up shows in Australia and suddenly it was, Bomb. And, and I said, can you ask him if he could do an interview? And he said, well, I know we've asked him before. And, and Dainty said, he, well, he hasn't said no. And then suddenly it was like, okay, well, he's in Melbourne. Can you get here for tomorrow? I went, you betcha. Um, anyway, so he, he insisted on doing it with all of his band, the new power generation, with about eight of them. And we're in a tiny little room the size of a cupboard. So I tried a few warm-up quotes. So what's it like working with Prince? And, you know, hey, how would you describe you know, Prince's thing? And then I threw a couple of questions at him. And what's it like to be on the road? You know, whatever it was. And after about three minutes, he said, can we just pause for a minute? And he said, come with me. And we, walked, and we were in this little cupboard. Um, and then he went into his dressing room, which was the size of a football stadium, <laughs> and, um, and was all decked out beautifully with all the lights and candles and purple stuff. Um, and uh, sat down with him for about 40 minutes, I think it was, and just he just talked, and he was fantastic. He said, I'm sorry, I'm so terrible at these interviews. I'm sorry, now I know why I don't do them. But 
he said, you seem like a really nice guy and I really want to talk to you, but I'm just, I just freeze and I don't do interviews. And it's like, oh, God. And it was only when we... I said, mate, we need something. We need because we've promoted the hell out of this exclusive interview. Yeah. <laughs> I need something from it. He said, oh, do we have to do it again? I said, yeah, we need something, mate, please. Oh, he was so beautiful. It was only when I walked out of the room um, that I, the sound recorder was standing there with his eyes bulging out of his head and pointed to his lapel, which made me realize that I was still mic'd and he'd recorded every bar of that um, conversation. Oh wow! Uh, during which, uh, which in which Prince had talked about, you know, his battles with the record label and all that sort of stuff. Which I I had a conversation with myself and I decided to not uh, reveal any of that stuff. Which I think, which I'm happy that I made that decision. Yeah, because um, he, he was unaware. He, but it was a it was a wonderful moment for me. Um, so Prince, you know, on on the record was was probably the most difficult interview. Off the record, he was a beautiful. Erudite, you know, um, talented, wonderful, insightful human being, and that that was a special moment in my career. Hey, Richard, what about when they give you too much, like Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson did earlier in the year? <laughs> the kids, the kids, I'm really, yeah. Um, yeah, funny. I'm, I'm sitting at my kitchen bench now, and I remember that night on March the seventh or the eighth, and um, it was the seventh. And uh, I had tickets to go to Elton John's final performance uh, of his Australian tour, as you will recall. He was playing this big gig out at uh, Paramount at the new Bankwest Stadium there. And also Rita Wilson was doing a little showcase gig in at the Sydney Opera House. And she was coming on the Today Show on the Monday morning. So I'd seen Elton a few times. I love Elton. It's one of my favourite artists. But I thought, oh, you know what? Instead of slapping out to Paramount, I'll just I'll go and see Rita, go and see a couple of songs, suck up a bit, you know. <laughs> And uh, but I sucked up more than I knew I was sucking up. <laughs> uh, I got I got there a bit late. Got there for the final three or four songs. Then the promoter Michael Castle said, "Come backstage and say good day." I went, "Yeah, okay." And waited for a minute with him and uh, his PR guy Remy. And we sat there, sat there for a while. And then the three of us went uh, into this little room. G'day, Rita. How you going? It was great, fantastic. You know, selfie, selfie. It was like literally three or four minutes, maybe five, ten max. But I wasn't in that room very long. But as it turns out, six of us uh, who were in that room with Tom, Tom and Rita included, and Michael Castle and Remy uh, and myself um, and someone else who I can't remember, all came up positive. But, uh, you know, at the time, it was just a quick little meeting and I was in and out. I was coming out of the opera house. I saw a whole lot of paps down the thing, obviously waiting for Tom and Rita, zipped around the side, walked down passed at the overseas passenger terminal in Sydney, which you know what that looks like. There was this massive ocean liner there that was setting about to set sail for New Zealand the next day called the Ruby Princess. Oh, God. <laughs> um, oh, God. And I walked, walked up to my Uber there and jumped in and went home. And um, So that was the 7th. Yeah, and then on the 12th, the following Thursday, Tom and Rita announced from their hospital beds in Queensland that they, they'd copped it. So Channel 9 had gone into... You know, panic mode, obviously, as you would. Yep. Um, and uh, everyone went and got tested, and um, everyone came back negative except me. I got the call on a Sunday night and started two and a half weeks um, of sitting at home by myself, which was kind of weird. So, um, yeah, it was, it was without a symptom. And yeah, I was just going to say, were you sick or? No. I think in hindsight, I've kept a journal because everybody in the world that I know sent me messages, which was lovely. And, um, and I, People said, what did you do on your own? I said, I was busy. Man, I was busy those three weeks. Because I was one of the first sort of, you know, ones, dare I say. I was number 171. So I was a bit of a novelty at the time, and I was doing crosses to shows and radio things and all that. People wanted to know what it felt like. And, yeah, it feels okay. I'm home, and the weather's good. Nobody to annoy me. It's, you know, life could be worse. Yes. Um, but then I woke up every morning and wondered if, you know, I was going to die and stuff and fearing for my kids and stuff. So it was a very, very strange time. Um, I should have gone to Elton John's show. <laughs> there you go. There's the moral of the story. <laughs> go to Elton if you get the chance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, Richard, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been uh, terrific to catch up and uh, very generous with your time and uh, all the best of luck for the rest of the year, mate. Good on you, boys. Stay safe. Thanks. Thanks, all Richard. You're champion. Yeah, well, that was a bit of fun. Richard Wilkins. What a man. Yeah, what a good bloke. What a, what what a ripper. <laughs> yeah, he is.
Very yeah. well spoken. I reckon a lot of people have a have a sense of uh, what who Richard is and what he's about and all that by watching him on television and and the scuttlebutt around you know being on the front of magazines and all that stuff. And then you actually get to talk to him. You go, he's he's really nice bloke. Seems like he's a you know pretty switched on dude. And yeah, good on him. Thank him for very much for coming on the show. Got uh, good stuff sorted out. And he's like that COVID. I tell you that COVID thing's not fun. I had a COVID test this week. Because I had oh, yeah. I had flu symptoms, so having that thing jammed down your throat and and the nurse was terrific and and stuck up your both nostrils uh, is not it's not a fun thing uh, to be tested for, let alone actually have. Which Richard had it, yeah, so. uh, but he didn't have any symptoms. So anyway, no, that's but, weird, isn't it? Uh, none yeah. at all. All right, one part of this program that we like to uh, to do uh, because uh, you know it's the only segment we've actually got uh, an official segment with a title. <laughs> um, because all the other stuff is just rambling stuff that we do. It's the only segment we've got. <laughs> and it's called, What Are They Trying to Prove, Brian Mannix? Well, what are they trying to prove, Kev? Now, the restrictions have been lifted and my pub is allowed to have 40 people in the pub. But So that's 20 in where the pokies are. Right. And then there's 10 in the bistro. Yep. And then there's 10 in the sports bar. You can have you, 70. Is that where you normally hang out, yeah, the sports, the sports bar? Yeah. And you can have 70 out where the smoking lounge is, where the smoking area is. Oh, so, wow. Okay. But anyway, in my pub, in the, the sports bar, they've only allowed 10 people and we have to keep safe social distances at all times. Right, because, you know, you don't, metres, whatever it is. You don't want anybody getting the COVID. Yeah. However, <laughs> my local brothel can have 50 people in there. Now... <laughs> How the hell are you supposed to so- safe social distance at a brothel? It defeats the whole purpose of going to the brothel in the first place. So all I can say is I've got 10 in my sports bar but I've got 50 crammed into the brothel screwing each other's brains out and that's okay. Dan Andrews, what are you trying to prove? <laughs> so I, I imagine the next uh, drinking session, you and the boys are going to the brothel to drink because there's more room for you to be able to spread out. That's right. We're making a booking at the Oriental Plum in Thomastown <laughs> and we'll be up there <laughs> oh, having God. a few coldies. How can you socially distance in a brothel anyway? Uh, I, uh, that's a discussion for another podcast, I reckon. <laughs> I just think it's quite... Bizarre. Oh, that's... You know, I think you'd be more likely to catch something in a brothel than uh, in the front bar. (laughs) Actually, no. You're probably more likely to catch something in the sports bar of your pub than you are in a brothel. Well, it is is a good sports bar. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, uh, That's the kind of logic that made this country great. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) And absolutely uh, no no logic whatsoever. Dennis Uh, Cometti's coming up shortly. Dennis Cometti. Uh, Yes, he is. But uh, now we're going to play one of your songs. Now, this is one of the songs that you are doing uh, uh, acoustically with uh, with Tim? Yep, yep. I'll be giving this one a crack. Okay. And it's, um, it's, well, it's kind of appropriate for the COVID-19 thing because it's called Here Comes the Day Again. So, which is pretty much how I felt the last yeah, six day, months. Same day. Oh, here comes the day again. Same another day. Groundhog Day. Yeah.
Oh, nice little tune, that one, Brian. Look forward to hearing that, uh, the acoustic version of that. Yes, very much so. Do you do some Mariah Carey sort of vocal gymnastics on the end? No, no, I deliberately don't. Um, (laughs) No. It's a good thing. No, I sing more like Lionel Rose. It's a good thing. That's okay. Lionel Rose? Yeah, I like his song. I've been listening to his song. I've been trying to find it. You know, thank thank you you. for the thing. Yeah. Which Johnny Young wrote. Yes, he did. Yeah. Johnny Young wrote a lot of songs in the yeah, 60s. Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, Lionel, Lionel, actually, there's a song, I think it was the B-side of one of the songs. I don't think it was an A-side. It was called Pick Me Up On Your Way Down. Yes. And uh, that, that was a really it was a really good little song, which I'm sure I'm sure uh, Youngie wrote that one as well. Yeah, right. Lionel actually did a couple of good songs. I've been listening to a whole lot of just old Australian stuff lately and then I suddenly thought, yeah, Lionel Rose, he had a song. Who you been and listening to? Like the Town Criers and the group and the groove? Uh, and- yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Slim Dusty. Um, okay. Were well, you going through a country period or something? Oh, uh, yeah, maybe. I've sort of just been – I've been having a beer with Bartolo and I take my little um, – no stereo thing along, and we just listen to all these really stupid songs. He's you know he's sixty four or something. He's an old fella, and he's Italian, so he loves he loves listening to Dean Martin and stuff. So um, we've been listening to Slim Dusty and all sorts of just different Chad stuff. Morgan. I haven't got Chad out. I must get Chad. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I must. Uh, I must uh, unleash Chad Morgan. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Lights on the Hills are good. Slim Dusty song. Slim actually did some really good songs. I think his wife wrote most of the songs. Joy McKean. Yeah, she did. She wrote a lot of stuff. Uh, much unappreciated uh, songwriting talent. Uh, both Slim and Joy. And Dennis Cometti. Oh, well, yes, and you're going to find out about his songwriting talents uh, as we uh, we bring the man on himself uh, to help celebrate National Patio Day, which is coming up on uh, Saturday the 5th of December. So get out in your backyard, slip, slop, slap, and uh, look after your skin, but uh, get a beer in you and a sausage all at the same time. Doesn't get much better than having a beer and a sausage. No, it doesn't. Uh, But it does here on this podcast now that we welcome our very special guest from the West. Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, is it Brian, is it? Yes, that's right. How are you? G'day. Yeah, g'day. Dennis, thanks for your time. Okay. National Patio Day. Um, a, a big day in the committee household? Uh, yes, it is, actually. I haven't done one before, but I'm looking forward to it. We're celebrating summer with Straco National Patio Day. It's on Saturday, the 5th of December. Oh, but yeah. our partner is Cancer Council. So uh, last year together, they raised over $250,000. I wasn't a part of that, but I think this year we might do even better. Hey, Dan, were you one of those sportsmen who ran around as a kid, to, you know, playing footy and cricket and all that and didn't have sunscreen on and, you know, like the rest of us came home looking like a beetroot? Uh, pretty much, yes. I don't know about a beetroot, but, uh, yeah, I sort of certainly got sunburned plenty of times. And WA being sort of a, a beachy place, I spent a lot of time down the beach as well during the summer. So uh, all of that didn't help me. Although I've been pretty lucky. I think uh, as a footballer and not a cricketer, I played a bit of cricket, but, one of the reasons I didn't play much was because it was too damn hot. Yeah. So, Dennis, how does National Patio Day work? What what do we do and how do we make it all happen? Uh, well, you've got to register first. You want to become uh-huh. a host. That's the thing. So people are hosting these days or this day around the country. You get a host kit from uh, Stratco. Everything you need to have a good time is right there. And for more info, what you do is go to Cancer Council, nationalpatioday.com.au. It's all there as well. Now, as a host, every $20 you raise puts you in the draw to win $30,000. I'm doing my spiel here. I didn't mean to hit you so hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and at the same time, of course, we're raising awareness and funds to fight cancer in Australia, and that's a, a really great thing to be doing. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You've picked me clean on my knowledge. Now I'm done for. <laughs> so that's it. Hey, Dem, we wanted to ask you about a couple of other things as well as National Patio Day. Of course. Brian, obviously, being the lead singer of a very successful band in the 80s and still gigging around the place these days, um, you dabbled in music writing a few lyrics for this uh, Last Man Standing song. Uh, last One Standing. Last actually. One Standing, so, uh, sorry. That, that's right. No. <laughs> the boys don't get the royalties if they get the title wrong. Uh, and uh, there aren't many royalties to get. But, no, we, we wrote it originally back in uh, the Tide Grand Final, yep. for the Tide Grand Final, actually. And uh, so we went back and sort of revisited this time and probably had a better result this time. I mean, it seems to me you don't get rich uh, writing songs or performing them, but having said that, it was a lot of fun. And the guys are talented musos. I sort of bought a record. Well, not a record. It was a CD. I bought a CD from one of the fellas. I was just sort of looking around on the net. I liked the music, so I contacted him and... uh, one thing led to another, and I met up with them in America, and uh, 
the association has continued. But they're good fellas. Uh, they're in Los Angeles, and uh, no, everyone was very kind this time around, although uh, I don't think there was much music to be made other than what we did overseas in America, and now, of course, uh, that's in real trouble to state. So yeah. uh, as a result, uh, we wouldn't be doing what we did for grand final now, I don't think. You've got a real passion for music, Dennis, on Led to Believe. Is that correct? Well, I started out as a disc jockey when I was, uh, actually, I was, <laughs> my best years are behind me. They actually occurred when I was about 18. <laughs> I was playing league footy. I was, I was playing league footy over here and it was going okay and I got a job on the radio, but I always wanted to be a disc jockey and, and that was the overpowering thing. I played at, uh, well, I worked at a number of, you know, top 40 stations in Perth. I came to Melbourne and worked at 3DB and did nights there for about a year. With a very good friend of mine, yeah. Peter Harrison. I am godfather to Peter's son. Yes. Uh, yes, that's right, and uh, a good disc jockey at XY too, so uh, he was terrific. We we came through the ranks together at 6pm, and funny to relate, Sandy Roberts was in the newsroom, and also in the newsroom was Brian Burke, who became Premier of Western Australia, and just about every night, because our ships changed times, uh, or changed at the time that uh, suited us all, we all met at the intersection, we'd go over for dinner. You played a bit of footy at that stage with the doggies. Uh, well, no, I didn't play much. I think I played about four or five reserve games, but I came over to do nights at 3DB. That was the reason. I got the sack over here from one of the radio stations. That was part of the course. You just got sacked at regular intervals, to keep you honest. <laughs> uh, and I, I just about worked a dial over here, so I had to come across and uh, get a job somewhere, and I finished up at 3DB. I had a terrific station at the time. It wasn't purely sort of top 40 music, but it was at nights, and I was doing 7 till 10, but... Of course, 7 till 10 doesn't help you with footy training, but it yeah. was good fun. I, I love the dogs. I love my time down there. I still barrack for them. Beautiful. Very good. So my daughter said that mm-hmm. she thinks that you hosted the uh, pop festival Merryweather or something uh, a couple uh, of years ago. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of the place. Uh, there wasn't much to it, but it was a festival. It was a rock festival up there. And you guys might know it better than me because uh, one of the features of it was a nude race. And, I mean, they did race in the nude and I had to call that. So uh, <laughs> a, mate of mine, a, mate of, a mate of mine dragged me into that. And it was a really fun time, actually. They must have had, uh, I don't know how many people. It would have been close to, uh, I reckon, 30,000 people on a couple of properties up there. But it was a very small town. Can't quite remember the Meredith name of it. Might be. Might be Meredith. No, that sounds that sounds yeah, close yeah, to money. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. funny because life is a series of coincidences. And the guy that when I coached West Perth uh, later, sort of over here, I uh, had an assistant coach who lived on the adjoining property to where they were holding the festival. Oh, and I hadn't seen him for years, and he just stepped across uh, a wooden log, and suddenly he was on the premises. And uh, it was a terrific time. I caught up with a bloke that I really enjoyed his company. And, uh, of course, the nude race was something else. I mean, they ran. <laughs> there, was, there was no cover at all. They just ran nude. I mean, that was it. Girls and boys. Was it, is, uh, it, I, is it up there in I, the Bruce McAvaney, Kathy Freeman type call for you, Den? I think better. I, I was inspired <laughs> by some of what I saw. You know, I know he was too, but at the same time, uh, I didn't expect what I saw. He, he knew what he was going to get. <laughs> I hope they had some sunscreen on for that nude race because... Uh, that's the whole point of um, well, I, I'm patio <laughs> Exactly. I, I could have flogged a few patios that day, I reckon. <laughs> but uh, uh, it wasn't, as I recall, it wasn't that hot. But uh, as a result, it didn't detract from the event itself. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure it still goes. <laughs> I'm sure it still goes. How come that didn't run a mention in your commentary, your, your best commentaries in your Hall of Fame speech? <laughs> well, uh, there may have been just a little slight, slight periods during the race because uh, they weren't the best runners in the world, but uh, some of them uh, got a little blue, I think, about halfway through. So I, I thought best not to put it on the highlight reel. I hope you didn't. I hope you didn't say, "And he's definitely the perfect." Because that wouldn't have been appropriate in the new race. Uh, well, I, I did say it was quite cool. <laughs> hey, Dennis, you had this thing where you used to work in, and I don't know whether it was a dare, or it started as a dare, or whether it started as uh, just you being creative, of putting song lyrics in the middle of football calls? Uh, yeah, well, I was sort of doing some uh, work with a radio station over here that was playing Top 40, and uh, by this stage I was a football commentator. And it was just something that they sort of dared me to do. I forget how it started. It was something that was sort of pretty mundane. They suggested that something we'd said on The Breakfast Show, 
I should try and work into the commentary. And then it became sort of a truly national event. Well, a local event here, but uh, it started to get a little bit of coverage elsewhere too. So that made me very self-conscious. But they would nominate or listeners would nominate a line for the song. And it was just getting too hard. I mean, I wasn't caring about learning the players. I was just thinking about where I put the damn song. <laughs> so, uh, I was glad to see the back of it, but uh, uh, there were a few that sort of uh, couldn't quite get down. I'm just trying to think. There was one line in particular that had no hope of working, and then a strange set of circumstances happened on the ground. I can't even remember the line, so I can't do it justice, but it, it just worked. And I thought, that's a great place to stop. I couldn't do that again. So, uh, we, did it, we did it for about a season, but... Uh, no, it uh, was something that was very self-indulgent. Bloody good fun. Well, you didn't have to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> I, was a nervous, I was a nervous wreck by the end of that. <laughs> uh, I, I was risking both careers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about having a uh, band? There's a band in Perth called the uh, called Dennis Committee. Who, they're like a punk band. Uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, I'm aware of them. Uh, you know, I sort of... Uh, I've spoken with their manager, and uh, oh, I sure haven't have. seen them, but I've, I've, I've heard them. It's not really sort of in my sort of domain in terms of music. I, I appreciate what they're doing, and they're making a lot of noise, so that's good. But uh, I haven't, I haven't quite got around to seeing them. But I think they've got a new album out, and they've been uh, kind enough to keep me in the loop. So uh, I might go and have a look at them soon. I've got plenty of time, but I don't know re- whether I'm ready for sort of punk rock at this late stage <laughs> of my career. <laughs> what, what sort of music do you like, Dennis? Do you listen to if you drive in the car or at home or whatever? Uh, just, uh, you know, sort of modern pop stuff. Uh, no, Pete Yawn, that sort of thing, you know, Pete Yawn. Uh, yeah. Some, yeah. Some of the others, uh, just trying to think of a few that are on there. The trouble is now, you don't sort of know the names of the songs or half the time the artists because uh, you just put them on there and they just play sort of incessantly and uh, you can't always think who you've got there. But I'll, I'll if I've got time, no, I can't do this. I was going to say, I'll look at my phone, but my phone's on my ear, so I, I can't do that. I'm not good <laughs> enough to do that, but uh, uh, there's quite a few artists I like, but as I say, I sort of go looking for unknown artists too. I think that's fun because uh, it's funny how we think all the best music resides with about 10 people we like. When, of course, the opposite is true. I mean, after a while, uh, those people start making less and less music unless they're very lucky in terms of the quality. And uh, people churn out just one good song, maybe, but uh, it's a very good song. So I, I just enjoy trawling through them and you know, trolling through my work yeah. and finding you know, stuff that I like. Where, where'd you, how did you discover McKenna? Uh, well, that's, that's how I found him. I just found an album that he'd done, and I thought it was really good. And uh, so I contacted him and... Uh, you know, he didn't know me from Adam or what I did, but I just I just gave him a ring one day and uh, tracked him down, and uh, he sort of uh, was very interesting too. He'd been in the Navy, and as a result, he was going to university over there because I think that comes with your service. When you sort of come out of the service, you uh, can go to uh, a university. He was in L.A. at, uh, I think it was the University of Los Angeles or California, one of those, uh, and uh, Regardless, uh, he was uh, writing good music. So I decided I'd meet up with him. I went over there and we talked about financing the album I spoke of and uh, we did that. And, uh, you know, they've become good friends, he and his mate. And uh, I see them every time I go to America. But I don't think I'll be going back for some time. Yeah. The way it's going. Yeah, no. that was the funny thing. When you when you announced that you were kind of giving up the, the, the week-by-week calling, you were going to travel. Well, that hasn't kind of worked mm. out, has it, unfortunately? Can't be bad luck, can you? No. Uh, you know, uh, just, just clumsy by me. My my timing was bad, but uh, it seems odd anyway. If like you did all that travel, we want to go travelling. But uh, there's a difference between travelling for work and travelling travelling. Yeah. Uh, but America's a place I have always gone to a lot because of the sport. Uh, but uh, now I, I don't see myself going back anytime soon, if at all. Did you actually work out that you'd spent five years in a plane? Well, I think that might be underestimating it because yeah. I did. Uh, I did a lot of chess cricket before I sort of finished up working for Channel 7. I was with the ABC, and then I, when I was with 7, uh, they were kind enough to let me do it with uh, Kerry Packer's organisation. So I did about uh, well over 100 test matches. Yep. And there was less flying in that, though, because once you got to the East Coast, with the one day as between the test matches as they were scheduled in those days, you couldn't get back home. So you weren't flying all the time, but you were doing the Eastern Seaboard, particularly, you know, sort of Melbourne, Sydney, Sydney, Melbourne, so a lot of flying there too. So I, I, that was just the footy I think you're talking about. Yeah. But uh, no, I, uh, I, I'm not one who uh, enjoys or didn't enjoy. I was a bad flyer for a while, but uh, eventually uh, 
you do enough of it, you become a good flyer. Well, I've forgotten how to now. <laughs> now, I want to ask you, the first time I heard you, I reckon, was in that early part of the 70s with Alan McGilvray calling cricket. And uh, for me, you were, you were a bloody brilliant cricket caller. I love listening to you uh, calling cricket on the ABC. Is is there is there a, a, like choosing your children between cricket and footy for you or has footy always been the number one thing that you like to be involved in? Well, yeah, I think it's footy for me. I, you know, sort of I played footy. I was close to footy, I think, growing up. But Cricket was good because you get a lot of time to talk, and particularly on the ABC in Perth, we did just about every ball of every Sheffield Shield match while I was there, and I was there for about 13 years. Yeah. As a result, it was to do with the time difference as much as anything else. The guy who was running the station just loved his cricket, so uh, it was just a festival of cricket. These days, uh, there's not much cricket really, unless it's chess cricket on the radio, and uh, I, I was just lucky to be in that era and, and really loved it, but... Uh, at the same time, I think football is, is the one I'd prefer if I had to make a choice because bad cricket can go over four days or five days. I mean, it can be. But if you get the right commentator with you, you can have a lot of fun. It's almost like talkback radio. You just chat and the balls are an interruption and then you yeah. go back to your chat. And I was blessed with some really good commentators. Kerry O'Keefe was there when I was there. That wasn't with the ABC. It was uh, actually on the uh, Kerry Packer radio station. So yeah. I broadcast with him. Uh, I started with Lindsay Hassett going back a long way. Uh, it was a wonderful time. I, I really enjoyed the cricket, so much so I had a full-time job with the ABC. I mean, uh, but at the same time, uh, they allowed me to uh, coach West Perth in the local football competition for three years uh, while working full-time for them because they saw me as their cricket commentator. Wow. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, I was still doing some footy, but uh, I did footy around that. When I wasn't coaching, it was a bit like uh, Eddie McGuire. When I wasn't coaching, uh, I'd call the footy, you know, like if it was a split round or a final that West Perth weren't in, and they were uh, not too many while I was coaching. <laughs> uh, it, was, it, was, it was good of them to let me do that, and that's the way they saw me. They saw me as a cricket commentator. But it's been a funny life, and, uh, and I think everything's worked out as well as I'd hoped. Everybody I speak to, Dennis, who retires, in inverted commas, is busier than they were when they worked. Are you in the same boat? <laughs> well, not really. It just takes me longer to do the same stuff. <laughs> like, what uh, <laughs> a day takes a week. You know, so it's funny. I mean, the pressure doesn't go off. It's sort of still, you know, sort of pressure's pressure. Uh, but at the same time, you're not doing too many things publicly. I just uh, pot around with a little television over here. Channel 7 have been very kind. and They've kept me sort of... Uh, doing things with football over here, so uh, that's good. And I do a little bit for uh, Triple M as well on the radio with uh, a game a weekend in Perth. Beautiful. Beautiful. Excellent. Uh, Look, thanks for talking to us, Dennis. We really appreciate it. Uh, National Patio Day, the 5th of December, the first Saturday of uh, of summer officially, and uh, get the slip-slop-slap happening and uh, and, uh, have a a bit of a get-together with your family, which is all important at this uh, this time, this year, and uh, this sort of stage of our lives. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, terrific to talk to you guys. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dennis. All good. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, fellas. Bye. Uh, terrific to have Dennis Committee on. Uh, what a good fella. What a lovely fella. What a ripper bloke and probably one of my favourite commentators. Oh, no doubt. I loved him. Uh, I must admit, uh, when I first discovered him, when I said that to him during the talk, uh, calling cricket out of Perth in uh, in the mid-1970s or early 1970s, he was just terrific. He was as good as there was going around. Yeah, I reckon his voice would be really good for cricket. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, really yeah. good. Really good. Uh, he's got a beautiful voice, no doubt about that. Oh, he does. All right, well, we're going to hear... Oh, not sure, his... he certainly does. Yeah, Kevin. thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, we're not going to hear his voice. We're going to hear uh, some of his words, though, because uh, the song that uh, that he wrote, which the McKenna's recorded and or re-recorded, um, uh, we're going to play that, Last One Standing. Good song. I'll get the title of it. Correct. So we'll uh, we will be playing that to, in just a tick. But a reminder about a few little things. Murcott's driving excellence. Don't forget that Christmas gift voucher uh, that is uh, available now through until uh, December twenty five. Sixty bucks off. So make sure you uh, jump on the website. That's murcotts.edu.au or give them a call on one three hundred triple five five seven six. You can book online for any of their courses. Uh, you can also check out obviously all the details of all the courses. They're in all states uh, and the gift vouchers are available now. Terrific to give some. On that, how much more reassured you'll be about the driving prowess of your kids, or uh, you know, your wife, or your husband, or your partner, or whatever? Do it. Get a Christmas gift voucher from mercots.edu.au. Our next show will be our Christmas show, Brian. 
Oh, it'll be an extravaganza, will it? Yes, it, well, it will be because well, I've spent be. I've spent eight months working up to this Christmas show. I know you've been very, very busy, very busy growing yeah. a a suitable beard. Yes, and getting a suitably fat guts. Right, um, I've I've worked on that tirelessly for so the COVID last not- seven months. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of ice cream go through, uh, you know, this. I've, the poor people at uh, Schick have gone broke because I haven't been buying razor blades. So right. I put a lot of work into this Christmas show. So uh, you'd better be good. Right. I better, <laughs> better watch out. Yeah. Oh. Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> yes. We can have all sorts of fun and surprises for our Christmas show. We look forward to that. Hope you enjoyed this one. Our thanks to Richard Wilkins. Our thanks to Dennis Committee. My thanks to Brian Mannix. My uh, thanks to Kevin Hillier. <laughs> Who's just doing a centimetre perfect job there today. Uh, We're going to finish with uh, Last One Standing, the song that uh, Dennis helped co-write with the McKinnas, so that'll finish us off. Have a great time, Brian. We'll see you for the Christmas show. Thanks, Kev, and uh, may everybody be safe and we'll see you for the Christmas show, God willing. Rock,